0: Good afternoon. It's nice to hear the sound of the rain. This is the body of spring. Zen tradition, there are wonderful little stories or anecdotes called koans, and uh, there's a beautiful koan about the rain where uh, a student uh, comes to the teacher and says, how do I enter my life? Not a great question. I mean, I think that could be the whole thing. Uh, that's my favorite thing as a teacher when somebody uh, who's practicing really deeply comes uh, with a question that's so raw like that. Like, how do I really enter my life? Usually that kind of question comes from being able to stop, but also are running around so much. You can see just in the last 24 hours, uh, being on retreat here in this quiet place, how much you're running. Running towards pleasure, running away from pain. So anyways, the student is asking this really simple question, how do, how do I enter? And the teacher says... Um, do you hear the sound outside the window? And the student says, yeah, uh, that's the sound of rain. And the teacher says, oh, people these days always chasing after things. And the student obviously is confused. Because if I said, what's out there? You would say rain. Rain. But anybody who just spent the last uh, period walking outside, which when I saw was many of you walking in the rain, you know that that's not what's out there. We have these blanket statements, oh, it's raining out there. And then there's a mood associated with it from the past. So the student says, how do I really enter my life? The teacher says, do you hear the sound out there? And the student says, oh, yeah, that's the sound of rain. And the teacher says, oh, people these days always chasing after things. So the student says, which is something I've always wanted to say, well, then how would you say it? (laughs) And the teacher says, I almost don't lose myself. I almost don't lose myself. It's a wonderful line, isn't it? I almost don't lose myself. On the one hand, uh, you lose yourself. You go deep inside the rain, and there's no rain there. There's an experience that's happening that the term rain can't capture. And at the same time, um, you're so deeply in the experience that you're completely yourself. You lose yourself, but you don't disappear. I almost don't lose myself. So this is our practice. How to be with your life, how to be deeper than your concepts of your experience, and how to be intimate with your moment to moment life. You know, uh, it's tricky. So anyways, this is what I want to talk about today. I didn't plan on talking about the rain, but I will now. Um, But I want to talk about uh, being in our life uh, in an embodied way, as an embodied practice. Vipassana as an embodied practice. Insight as an embodied practice. You know... um, Maybe you came on retreat and you said, I'm going to come on retreat and I'm just going to relax. I just really need to chill out. And actually, you'll notice that uh, your body can't relax. You can't just say, I'm going to relax. And then you take a few deep breaths and your body relaxes. You can't relax without some insight. can't relax without seeing really clearly uh, the effect of stress. The effect of stress. The effect of reactivity. The effect of running. uh, In your own breathing. In your nervous system. In the people around you. And then when you have some insight into causality, how your stress affects you how being unable to stop affects other people then maybe you can begin to relax but if you just say oh I'm going to come here and I'm going to relax and be mindful you'll see that there's something in the way so we have to learn to let go This week is an anniversary of the death of a close student of mine. I had a student uh, who I worked with for many years named Jerry, and uh, he was uh, a really beautiful man. So whenever it's raining at this time, it's always like I remember that time of being with him in the hospital. He came to see me because um, he was scared that uh, with the cancer that he had, that in the process of dying, he would uh, be in pain. And he would always say, I'm not scared of dying. I'm not scared of death. But I'm terrified of the pain. I don't want to be in pain when I'm dying. So uh, I taught him mindfulness practice. He hated it. So one day he said, can't we do something a little more like counting breathing or something? <laughs> so we did. So then I taught him yoga breathing practices like we did downstairs today. And he loved, he loved this so much. And uh, then uh, my life got busy. And um, I had to ask a student uh, to, to take over, uh, Elaine. And Elaine started seeing him. And then about a year later, uh, his wife called me and said, Jerry's dying. He just wants to see you. So I remember coming into the hospital room. And as I turned to see him, he, he reached his hand out from under the, the bed. And he had, like, academics hands. I don't know how many of you here are academics, but academics have amazing hands because they don't work. Like, they, they don't, they've never done any labor. They've only touched computers and uh, books. You know? So he had those kind of academic hands. Meditators have these hands, probably, too. Um, And so uh, when you touch his hands, the skin is so, so soft. And um, uh, so I used to always uh, say to him, uh, you know, how are you doing? And he'd say, good, let's do some breathing. And when he was exhaling, I would always say to him, uh, everything's going the way you're going. He really liked that. And I would say it like five or ten times You'd exhale and I would just say Everything's going the way you're going And that's how we, we practiced Dying Because when you're really dying And you have a practice Then you're not dying Actually When you're dying and you're, you're practicing You're actually totally In the living place Not in the dying place You're in the living place In Zen, we say, uh, there is no death. Because if you're right there, moment to moment to moment to moment, one moment, you're not there anymore. And everyone around you is saying, oh, they're dying, they're dying, they're dying. But when there's someone there who's dying and they're actively involved, they're 100% living. It's really profound. And then the body lets go. His wife, I remember one day, came in and said, what am I going to do when he's actually dying? <laughs> I said, when he's actually dying, hold his hand. Say to him, can I hold your hand? And then go hold his hand. And if you really hold his hand, he'll hold your hand. And you'll know what to do. She, she didn't believe me, but it worked. I remember her saying at the funeral, it worked, you know, it really worked. so um, your body is not your body I mean we go around thinking oh this is my body and I do all these things to make my body a certain way or I think of my body a certain way but actually that's all mixed up with stories That's why it's so profound to see somebody give birth or to be with someone when they're dying. Especially someone who's dying, who, who's in the dying. Because uh, the body just does it. And um, our body that's here breathing, it's hard to feel your body breathing Because like I said yesterday, as soon as I say, notice your breathing, you're going to mess with it somehow. You're going to elongate it or you're going to deepen it somehow. So the first foundation of mindfulness is really profound. When you contemplate the practice of feeling your breath without changing it, which I would translate as trusting your life. Because later, if you want to practice mindfulness with anger or uh, jealousy or really strong emotions, uh, it's hard to do unless you can be able to feel something and leave it alone. You see? So that's why the first foundation is being able to feel it and leave it alone. And if you've had a lot of unprocessed grief uh, in your life, or a conflict where you've really, you're, you're really pushing something away or you've had trauma then it's hard to trust your breathing because you'll notice there's all these layers where you're kind of fight, fighting your breath or, or overworking your breath, over-breathing you can see it in people when they're over-breathing you're meditating and you can see the, their scalenes light up while they're breathing oh, Overworking. overworking. And also, um, tuning into the body uh, makes us a little more humble and maybe opens us up to the fragility of our life, too. Because not only is this not your body, your body is also your ancestor's body. You know, when you're young, you think, well, I'm going to practice and I'm going to cure all of my symptoms. Well, I did this anyways. And then after a while you start to see, you know, I'm really growing into my mother (laughs) or my father. And then maybe you start to see that the genetics of your family that exists in your body starts to come out uh, more strongly as you age. So if your family has a tendency towards uh, addiction or depression... Or alcohol, then sometimes as you age, those tendencies actually will start to come out stronger. Insomnia. So then it's really important that you develop a practice so that you can uh, see that this body is not your body. You're responsible and it's not your body. I really enjoyed Grant's uh, instruction during walking meditation about stepping on the ground and not being certain that the ground is stable. I don't know about you, but that I really felt that. So, in the Buddhist tradition, this is called uh, emptiness. Which is uh, seeing how toxic certainty is. And emptiness is not like a place you go to one day in meditation practice. Emptiness is a sensibility. It's a strategy that you use to look at your life. The word that we translate as emptiness is um, shunyata. And it comes from the Sanskrit verb shu, which means to swell. And it's the same word you use to describe somebody who's pregnant. So we say something is so swollen with life that it's empty of one thing let me say it another way so when we say something is empty which is the title I think of this retreat what we mean is something is empty of an inherent thingness an inherent substantiality because it's interconnected with so many things you see And your body is like this. It's not one thing. Just like this teacher who's saying to his student, it's not the rain. (laughs) If you want to learn how to enter your life, you have to go beyond the body that you're calling your body. Through the body into the body. If you're married, you have to go beyond your conception of marriage in to the marriage inside your marriage. The commitment inside of commitment. So, when the teachings of emptiness go from India to uh, Japan via Korea and China, um, they translate the word shunyata uh, with the Japanese, Sino Japanese word ku which actually uh, means the sky. Nowadays, we think of the sky as a thin layer of polluted atmosphere um, with greenhouse gases. But actually, once the sky was considered boundless. So you might wonder, well, then why do we translate the term shunyata as empty if there's this sense of boundlessness or the sky? And the basic idea is that when you have a form, let's say this body, let's say this hand, we look at it and we say, oh, this is a hand. But it's only a hand, linguistically, with language. When you look a little closer, there's so much more going on here than hand. It's like 75% water. And I've come, you know, your, your water changes in your body every three days, three and a half days. So three days ago, I was in Toronto. So that means right now, I'm like 60% Toronto. I'm not even an arm prior yet. In other words... Conditions come together to create what appears as a thing. And when the conditions change, the thing changes. Nobody is an angry person. In certain conditions, anger arises. And if some of those conditions are not present, anger does not arise. Does anybody have this in relationship with anybody, where... You know, you don't have much anger, but there's like one person and one dialogue you have, and you're an angry person. Not many of you are not nodding, but I have this. I'm like not such an angry person, but there's one person. Whenever we encounter each other, I, I just get triggered within five minutes. But no other people like that. Just that person. <laughs> And they probably think, oh, Michael's really an angry, reactive person. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody is depressed. Nobody's always depressed. Certain conditions are present, and depression is present. You remove a condition or two, and depression is not there. Nobody's schizophrenic. In certain conditions, the symptoms of schizophrenia are present. If some of those conditions are not present, it's not present. You're not one thing. Your gender is like that. Everything is like that. Are you always a woman? Are you always a man? Sometimes it's really important, and sometimes it's not. How many times when you're sitting, are you aware of your gender, and then after a while, it has nothing to do with your experience? And then, in some instances, it has everything to do with your experience. So this is what we mean by empty. It's a strategy to see that no thing exists as a thing. Because the conditions that create thingness are always changing. And that's the nature of the body. And that's why in the yoga class today I kept saying, you know, feeling your experience underneath language. You know, some people are really into raw diets nowadays. So if you're a yogi, the thing that you're into is not raw dice, but raw sensation. It's this very radical thing to practice. So you should try this sometime. So you you feel an emotion, and instead of talking to yourself about what it means, where it comes from, and what it's related to, and and why you, um, you just feel the emotion as raw sensation. Can you imagine this? And you let go of whatever narrative you're plugging the sensation into. And it's not that the narrative goes away, but it opens you up so that you can create a story about that sensation after the fact that might be coming from a different angle. Because one of the most radical things you can do as a meditator and as a citizen is to tell the stories that are not the dominant stories. And one of the great things about meditation practice is it opens up your imagination to start telling the story of your life in a different way. I remember when I worked as a psychotherapist, uh, having the experience all the time of people coming in, because a lot of people knew I did psychotherapy and meditation, I had a lot of meditators coming and they used to always come in and say things like, okay, do I have to start from the beginning? <laughs> like, I'm so sick of telling this story again. You know? And so I would joke, and someone said, please don't tell that story again. <laughs> Sometimes uh, when people would tell stories about their parents, I would even once in a while get them to tell the same story, but instead of using their parents... Use their grandparents. And it would upset them so much, you know, because they couldn't get the story as good with their grandparents. But the purpose is just to, to show how we reinforce our lives as fiction. And oftentimes the body is saying something completely different. Completely different. And this is called shunyata, which is uh, the practice of love. It's the practice of being able to care for our experience in a moment-to-moment way. Because we're not trying to turn it into something. We're not trying to plug it into the narrative we have about the way everything is supposed to go or the way it should have gone. so good we all tell stories that wake us up and we also have stories that shut us down and you can really see that when you sit you can see the attention wandering off into stories that open us up but mostly, the attention wanders off into stories that shut us down because they're repetitive. I remember once on a retreat in Barry, Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation Society. And I was sitting, 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 sitting. And then, um, as I was getting up, I had the thought, that I was having a thought, like I could see the thought was coming as a thought, and that it was like visual, and that right in the middle of it was me. And I remember having this insight that every thought that I have, I'm the main character. Every thought. And I started seeing this for 10 days. For some people this would be very exciting. For me, it was horrifying that every thought I had, and then I realized the same is true with dreams. When you have a dream, you're always the main character. (sighs) And then when you contemplate the moments in your life where there was real contentment, you're so present but without this story that you're superimposing on the experience when I was 10 I was swimming in Algonquin Park not far from here actually uh, in a lake there uh, called South Tea Lake if any of you know Algonquin Park and um, I was swimming and I came up out of the water and at the same moment that I came up out of the water a loon came up out of the water (laughs) And we looked each other right in the eye. And then I had this thought wow, a loon. And as soon as I had the thought, the loon went under. And I never saw the loon again. And then it kind of haunted me, this experience, because my next thought was maybe because I had the thought. Loon, the loon could feel that I wasn't there anymore, and then the loon went away. And I, I wasn't a meditator yet, but I thought about this all. Do you know when you're a kid and you have these kind of like mind, you know, <coughs> games that you? And I thought about this all the time. Did the loon pick up that I had the thought? Because it's like this in relationship, right? You're you're totally there with somebody and as soon as the other person is starting to create a story about it you can feel it you can feel they're not there and maybe loons feel this more than humans (laughs) so when you have sensations arise in your body um the first thing that's really important is that you experience the feeling tone of those sensations. (coughs) And you notice how if they're pleasurable, you want to keep them going. And if they're not pleasurable, you want to run away. And because many of you have sat retreat before, um, you've heard this a thousand times. To stay with our experience without clinging without embroidering it without running away but also notice how it's impermanent how it's changing and usually when you contemplate this idea of change it's a little intellectual like oh yeah here's the sensation arising it's going to change soon it's going to pass away but that's that's not an embodied way of looking at change because if you take the logic of impermanence all the way to its end point there are no things that arise and pass away because the moment something's arising it's passing away you see In other words, the teaching of impermanence is not designed to show you that everything's changing. It's designed to show you that life is completely unknowable. Because the things that you know don't even exist. They're changing so fast. So, that actually the teachings of impermanence and the teachings of emptiness are identical. Because conditions are always changing, what we're experiencing is always changing. And the purpose of seeing that and feeling that in each moment of meditation practice is to show you how grasping is futile. Holding on to people that you love is not loving people. Holding on to a certain picture of your retirement is going to cause a lot of stress. Especially this time of year where everybody's selling us RRSPs, you know. We laugh, but it really gets in there. Our life is so fragile. So precious. It's important we don't waste time. We've wasted so much time. It's probably why you're here. You've had some insight into how much time you've wasted. So, this body is the body of your ancestors. And what that means is, when you practice, you're changing the lineage Of your life, when you don't fall into the old patterns of your grandparents, and I'm talking about the 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 habit energies, you know, you're you're changing the genetic structure of your body. Genes turn on and off all the time based on our actions. So you're changing your ancestry through your practice. That's why it's so important to practice. And we're planting new seeds. The Buddha said that there are two kinds of seeds. Wholesome and unwholesome. When I first heard that, I hated that language. Wholesome and unwholesome. But actually now I really love it. The whole, seeing things in terms of the whole, or not. Unwholesome means an attitude that's flavored with grasping. And wholesome is when you have an attitude that recognizes the whole. An absence of grasping. So at this point in the retreat... This is what I really encourage you to look at. To feel in an embodied way your breathing, your body, where it moves, where it's restricted, where you're present, where you're restricted. And just noticing that, just noticing that Takes the power out of grasping. You see the mind getting ready to go down that route, and as soon as you see it, it takes the power out of it. But it's so convenient to go down that road because then you don't have to embody whatever you're experiencing. <laughs> right? Isn't that so true? Like, like every time we go have a good story. It's a convenient mechanism so that we don't actually have to be in our experience in that moment. We're in a virtual reality. And that's the time waster. And I guarantee you that if you do that in a moment-to-moment way for this whole retreat, when you come out of this retreat, you won't want to buy anything. You'll see. It's really powerful. You, you do not you don't need anything extra. Imagine if after high school, kids had to take a year off and learn how to sit still. Could you imagine this? Okay, half a year. (laughs) Imagine when you're in the throes of craving at home. You can draw on your practice this retreat and learn how to sit still right in the middle of it, right in the middle of craving, right in the middle of grasping, right in the middle of irritability, right in the middle of your life. so that you can take more skillful action, more skillful communication. So all the forms we encounter exist and they don't exist. If you go out into the rain, you'll get wet. It's really helpful to have that story. If you walk in front of a car, you'll get run over. It's a good story to have. And at the same time, we can go much deeper than that. Not just staying on the surface of things. Maybe there's an uncomfortable feeling that's arising on retreat. Maybe it has to do with the social scene. You know, maybe like old habits of high school are coming back. You're not the popular person or someone with their locker near you is not talking to you. Or maybe it's more internal in your heart. Some frustration you didn't know was going to come up is showing up. Or maybe, because I noticed on the application a lot of you are therapists... Maybe you're feeling joy and you have no idea what to do. (laughs) Oh, I felt a little happiness. (laughs) I'd better analyze it. (laughs) So, our practice is to embody. Whatever's showing up, knowing that it's fleeting. It's just a moment in time. It's so exhausting doing anything else. Normally, what happens is, is you want something, and then you say, "Oh, um, I shouldn't get that thing. I can't afford it, or I don't need it." And we say, "Oh, that's letting go." <laughs> But when we talk about letting go in meditation practice, letting go means whenever there's grasping, you don't go with it. You see the grasping, and you don't go with it. It's just a dream. It's empty. Like bubbles on the river. And then you experience a deeper pleasure than the pleasure you think you can get from things. And this is the secret, actually. Nobody will tell you this, but this is why Janet keeps coming to these retreats. (laughs) Is that when you let go of something, the pleasure of letting go is deeper than the pleasure you can get from the thing. there's a real pleasure in not grasping. And so if you allow yourself to really get concentrated, stay with your breathing moment to moment to moment. And whenever craving or clinging comes up, feel how it shows up in your body. Find your breath again and watch it change and just do this again and again and again and again really commit to that not the normal way of seeing craving or wanting arise and then analyzing it with your best psychological framework oh this is that feeling related to such and such which is related to such and such and you know why did she leave Or should I take the job? Should I not take the job? City, country, city, country. Underneath that. Go underneath that. So... um. Spent the last hour writing a talk which I didn't look at once and didn't talk about what I was planning to talk about. As usual. <laughs> Let me just end by saying that uh, when you sit, it's a physical practice. And when you do physical practice, it's a psychological practice. When we're moving our bodies in yoga practice, we're really looking at our minds. And when you sit still, you're really working with your body. You're embodying whatever's showing up, moment to moment to moment. Awareness is embodiment. Awareness is not inside your body. Awareness is not outside your body. Awareness is embodiment. And your breath is intelligence and wisdom. When I teach kids, I always say, your breath is your best friend who's always loyal Kids really like that. Whenever kids have a lot of anxiety, I always say, your breath is your best friend. Find your friend. So I encourage you when you sit to listen carefully to the instructions Grant has been Giving so clearly about how to be in this practice with your whole body. It's one of the reasons why I don't like the word mindfulness because it sounds like it's in your mind, but it's not. It's your whole body, which is your ancestry, which is your lineage. Ecological practice. Mindfulness from the skin to the bones. Mindfulness of breathing. Embodied practice. So, thank you very much for listening. I feel always like the first Dharma talk of the retreat is like supposed to be cheerleading just to make you go, yeah, yeah, I, I can do this. <laughs> it's not so bad. Or, yeah, I can go further, actually. I can go much further. Or, you know, I'm only here 20%. I'm not really here. I'm only here 20%. So now I'm really going to practice Deeply. And one day, maybe when I'm teaching with Pascal, I'm going to wear a cheerleader outfit with a big Buddha on the front. And I'm going to do a dance to help get you going. So that on Sunday, when this retreat ends, you can say, oh yeah, everything's medicine." So thank you very much. Um, (coughs) On the bulletin board, there's a list of names for our first group meeting. So that's in the last room (laughs) down the hall on the left. And um, that'll be our first uh, group interview. And then the second one will be during walking meditation tonight. And um, go team. (laughs) Thank you.